0: One of the things that I haven't made plain until this moment, and now I will, is as we're, as we're thinking about justification by faith alone as a clarifier of the gospel by the way it distinguishes and separates out, sifts out our work so that the gospel as the good news can truly sound like good news. I mean, again, the point is that it doesn't sound like good news if there are any conditions, ifs, ends, or buts about it. And those conditions always sound to us like things we must do so that God can love us. And what justification tells us is that final verdict of not guilty, loved, beloved by God is sealed in a past act known as the cross of Christ given presently to you in this declaration of the gospel. That's what justification does, is say that all that's sealed. And it has to do with God's love for you, not your work for him. It's apart from the law, apart from works, right? So it does that sifting. What I haven't said until now is that as especially the Reformers read the Scriptures, they had a kind of paradigm jump out at them from the text, that they stylized as the distinction between law and gospel. And what they observed is that God's, work, God's one word works in two kinds of ways. And those ways are the way of the law and the way of the gospel. Whenever you're reading scripture or the word of God is supernaturally coming at you in the form of the preaching of the scriptures, that it is doing one of two kinds of works. It is doing the work of the law or doing the work of the gospel. Justification helps us see the separation of what clarifies the gospel, but oftentimes the agent that brings about the clarification is the law, which the purpose of which in its proclamation is to point out the inadequate nature of the works that are trying to to be presented before God. The idea of the law, especially if you go to a place like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' own exegesis of the law as he preached to the crowds, which included the Pharisees, was you all who are so legalistic in what you do. Actually, legalism is a form of lowering the law. That sounds a little bit counterintuitive, right? Legalism is a form of lowering the law, but think about it for a second. If you're in a legalistic culture, you're in a culture that says, if you follow this rule, this rule, and this rule, you're a good person and God loves you. So in a sense, if you just get these things down, uh, everything's going to be okay in your faith. And that's what legalism is. And what B.B. B. Warfield, a theologian from the 20th century, pointed out is that Pharisaism is a lowering of the law. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is ratchet up and raise that bar back to its proper height. You have heard it said that thou shalt not murder. I say to you, if you have a hateful thought, in a sense, you have heard it said that if you just don't actually kill anybody physically, that God loves you and you've obeyed him. But I tell you, if you have any hate in your heart for anybody else, that's as good as murder. And all of a sudden, that, that bar that was once attainable skyrockets up, and all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, good luck achieving that. And what is Jesus doing there? What is the law in his declaration of the law? What is he doing? What do you hear when you hear that? I don't hear, well, I guess I need to get... Uh, work really hard at not having any hateful thoughts toward anyone. What do you do in that moment, right? You despair of any ability to keep it. Well, if that's what it means when you say thou shalt not murder, I'm sunk. And Jesus is like, that's the kind of person I can work with. Let me show you who I am. That's the kind of person that's building their house on a solid foundation, which is Christ. So Jesus was doing that distinguishing work between law and gospel. So we could say that the function of of the distinction between law and gospel is to participate in the filter work of justification. Because law is exposing need. It's what you sing every Sunday when you sing, your perfect law uh, exposes me, I feel my sin, I should know know it. Your perfect (laughs) law exposes me, I feel my sin and desperate need. What's it there to do? One of the primary functions of it, it's there to do, is to show you that you need Jesus. So that Jesus, when he gives himself to you, you hear it clearly as gospel. Because it's been separated apart from your works. Because the law has said, good luck working hard enough so that you can earn God's favor. So law and gospel. What I want to say to you is that those function as kind of like patterns in ways in which we can view how the liturgy is working. So the Word of God does its work through law and gospel, and a liturgy is an attempt to embody the Word of God doing that work on you. And what I want to give you is something constructive to wrap your minds around structurally of what's happening to you in Holy Communion. So turn with me to your handout, page three. That's the number three at the bottom. I guess it would be page four. Structure of Holy Communion: Anglican Standard Text, BCP, 2019. What I want to outline for you is, what you've got going on in your communion service is precisely what Martin Luther nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in 1517, is walking through patterns of repentance so that you can learn what it means to be a Christian. And so that as you walk through those patterns over and over again, they wear grooves into your soul that become the life that you live. So in a sense, the liturgy is the most worldly thing you do because it is, as some worship theologians and liturgical theologians say, a distillation of all your life. If I had to to take my life and boil it down to its essence, who am I? I am a person who finds myself in Jesus, which means I'm a repenter. I'm someone who says, I need Jesus, and Jesus gives himself to me. I find my identity, really important word in modern culture today. I find my identity in Christ. What is worship there to do? It's trying to help you through the cycles of repentance, remember who you are. Because Monday through Saturday, because of all the other voices and competing identities that are constantly pressing in on us we're often forgetful of who we really are. Repentance and these cycles are there to remind us and to boil us down to our essence yet again in ritual form, but also to get to our heart. And so in a way you could say the Holy Communion liturgy is attempting to go through these cycles to kind of break the hardness of heart through multiple passes of the gospel, you could say. And so what I want to point out to you is in your liturgy, In the spirit of Cranmer, this is how it's working. You've got cycle number one, where in a way, the whole intent of the structure, all the way through the Gloria, is to expose to you the greatness and glory and grandeur of God so that you start to feel really small, so that you're ready to, in a sense, receive the kind of comfort that might come in a a form in the collect, And as we saw before, Cranmer was super interested in making the collects all grace all the time, all mercy all the time. So that's kind of cycle number one. And we'll go over these in more detail. Cycle number two, uh, this one's a little different in that it's not, I would say, an experience of law and gospel in a kind of first and then. What I would like to say is if this sort of paradigm of law and gospel as the way that the Word of God works is what the reformers are thinking is going on when the scriptures are read, they would assume that this work is happening as scripture is being being read before you. So even though we can't say that maybe this cycle two is like an ordering of first you are killed by the law and then you're given the gospel, like some sort of kind of formula. What we can say is there's an expectation that as the word of God is read, it's doing this kind of work. So if... We're being honest, maybe this is one of the weaker observations of a full blown, what we would call repentance cycle, or what I'm calling a repentance cycle. But nevertheless, I would encourage you as worshipers to, as you're hearing the scriptures read, listen to what it's saying and pay attention to what it's doing to you in what it's saying. Because therein, that second question, what is, it do, what is the word doing to me in what it's saying, you're getting at the nature of the way that the word is not only verbal, but living and active doing something, piercing joints and marrow, cutting your heart open, doing those things. So that's repentance cycle too, is the kind of scripture cycle. And then, knowing your preacher and preachers, what you will receive in the message is that gift of the word in law and gospel and the gift of Jesus in particular. So you're kind of walking through another cycle. And really, this is the, also part of the repentance cycle is the, quote, resulting faith, or the way that, In response to the word doing its work on our hearts in law and gospel, we respond in faith by some sort of action, by saying something like, I believe, or saying or praying something. And that's what you see going on here is you have the preaching of the word, and then you have an immediate faith response to say, when the word of God kills and makes alive, when the word of God exposes my need and gives me Jesus, what does the resurrected man or the resurrected woman do but stand and say, I believe in you, Lord? I give myself to you, Lord, self-offering and praying, which is why structurally it's beautiful that the creed and the prayers follow after the sermon. It's what faith does. When faith hears the word about Christ, faith says, I believe that. Faith seizes on the promise of God and says, that promise is worth believing. I believe it. And so we profess that faith. So you see, the creed is more than just some sort of rote thing that we do. In a sense, it's not only the confession of our lips, but it is what the heart does when the gospel has been given to the heart. I do believe in God the Father Almighty. And I do believe in Christ the Son. I do believe in the Holy Spirit. And then the prayers of the people, which is like, because I believe, in a sense, the, the works go horizontal. The conveyor belt of works turns on because of the work that God has done. And I can now begin to pray For my brothers and sisters. And do that work of loving my neighbor. Because God has reconciled us. Fourth repentance cycle. So after the prayers of the people. We turn to yet another kind of movement here. We have the confession. And absolution. Probably usually in liturgies. Whether it's morning prayer or Holy Communion. This is the most overt time. Where you can sort of bank on the clarity of law and gospel coming at you. Um, when you confess, you're basically saying, I need everything and I am destitute. And when the absolution is given, it is a word that, in a sense, almost interrupts your confession midstream and says, I forgive you. And the resulting faith being the peace, which um, wasn't, it's one of the things that I love about modern prayer books that wasn't initially in the stuff that Cranmer did, that actually led Episcopalians in 1979 to revolt when the peace was introduced into the prayer book because I don't want to shake hands with anybody else. But 500 years of formation of a bunch of introverts who happened to be in the same room engaging with God was finally broken down when we had to realize, oh, when God reconciles me with him, I actually am and can be reconciled to other people. So you see how, in a, in a beautiful way, this cycle of repentance leads to peace with God and with one another leads to the offering of oneself to God, typified often, like in your liturgy, in the form of an offering of a song to God, but also offering our tithes and offerings. And even the presentation and doxology being what faith does when faith comes alive as a result of repentance in the work of the, the law and the gospel. And the final repentance cycle being the Communion liturgy proper, where we begin with the great thanksgiving. And in a way, all these prayers leading up to the administration of communion can be seen as sort of massaging your heart into the posture of total need until the point of reception when God, through Christ, gives himself to you. And the resulting faith being the prayer that we pray. I want you to see these grand shapes because my hope, this is the moment where yesterday when I said, what I'd love to do is to give you hearing aids for the gospel. What I'm encouraging you to do is to try to experience the worship service like this. And maybe it might be as as strange as it is to train your ears to hear it. Maybe you get to worship a little early. I don't know if this will feel artificial, but maybe you could just spend a little moment writing these sections into your bulletins to, in a sense, train your ears on what you're listening for so that you're maybe, and this is charismatic, so that you're open to the movements of the Spirit in doing what the Spirit does when the Spirit is giving you the Word as it's working. I wouldn't want to go too far because part of the problem of liturgical worship, as I have experienced, is is we spend more time thinking about what we're doing than doing it. You know, the Achilles heel of liturgical worship is we're, we're all sort of intellectually stimulated by this aesthetic endeavor that we're all engaged in. And it's like what Um, a theologian said when it's like a man who is admiring himself, admiring the sunset. Instead of just experiencing the power and presence of God, you're busy thinking about your experience of the power and presence of God. And there is a difference. One is a relationship and one is pressing pause on the relationship to stand back and more analytically observe those things. I think what we are after as worshipers is a charismatic encounter with the power and presence of the living God. And God has seen fit to do that through the work of his word. And God has seen fit precisely in the work of his word to do that through the constant filtering out of your works and giving you the gospel in repeated cycles. But make no mistake, this isn't just some sort of theological head trip. This is meant to build in you A kind of pattern of a way of relating to God. Not unlike the way the pattern of the Old Testament sacrifices worked. A way of relating to God that teaches you, oh, this is how God and I connect. This is how I approach God rightly. This is how God relates to me. That's the ultimate goal is to give you hearing aids to hear some of this stuff. So I'd like to now go into the liturgy. So grab your bulletins and maybe keep this chart handy so that we can kind of look through it together. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail with some of the components of your liturgy. Hopefully this is more than just, huh, wow, so interesting, but really gives you a more rich sense of what's happening to you and amongst your community as you worship together. After an opening hymn, which is a wonderful way to begin a service by just uh, sort of opening your eyes to the glory and grandeur of God. I often joke as a worship leader for many years that the opening song, you could just put full-blown heresy in there and nobody would notice. Because everyone's so distracted coming from their, their lives that it takes the whole sort of four minutes of the opening song to calibrate yourself to what's going on. Uh, not that I've ever put heresy, heresy purposefully in an opening song, but you could because everyone's like wrangling kids or trying to slough off the burdens of the week or just sort of orienting themselves to the weirdness of being with everybody else and in a room together. And then the acclamation comes, which is new to prayer books as of 1979. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. What I love about the addition of this is that that's actually an import from non-Western liturgies. This is an import of what begins, if you were to step into an Eastern Orthodox worship service, this is the acclamation that you'd hear at the beginning, this Trinitarian acclamation. What I love about it is that it's a reminder that even though we, Protestant, Anglicans, find ourselves in a specific stream of global Christianity, as we worship here around Jesus, there is a kind of reaching across all lines to recognize that as broken and fragmented as we all are, we all participate in worshiping Jesus Christ. And insofar as we are worshiping Jesus Christ, we are one. So in addition to it being a beautiful acclamation of blessing our triune God, it's also a kind of confession that when I worship, what's happening in worship is far more than what I can see. And the people gathered for worship are far more than my eyes behold. And I'm participating in something much bigger than me, Something that has gone on in the past and something that spans all corners of the globe, not only west, but east. That's kind of the idea is maybe you can think during the acclamation, oh, wow, Lord, thank you for reminding me of the big community, the big story that I'm a part of. We have the Collect for Purity. We exegeted in detail last night, but again, I'd, I'd remind you, allow it to be a moment to focus you and, and remind you what is God going to do in this service, what is his desire for his word to be accomplished as I come? Open heart surgery through his word. You know, I'm, I've come to experience God as he gives me his word in law and gospel through Jesus Christ. To open me up and show me my need for Jesus. To take out my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. And to renew me and stitch me back up again. Multiple cycles so that in a sense that becomes the pattern of my life. Monday through Saturday. Collect for Purity as a kind of announcement and prayer. <clears throat> summary of the law. In case the flesh w- was hiding during the Collect for Purity, what I love about the gift of the summary of the law at the very beginning is that it, it functions kind of like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It ratchets that, ratchets that bar of the law up high again, which is why when I lead the liturgy, I like to emphasize keywords All. Right? Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There's an implicit question when a statement like that is given. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And there's a little whisper that goes on. How have you been doing with that this week? You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. How have you been doing with that this week? You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind. How have you been doing with that this week? The bar is awfully high. Which is why right after that we say what? Lord have mercy upon us. That's that's what the flesh does when the flesh has been pinned to the wall and accused and exposed for all that it is. The flesh has nothing to do but to cry out for mercy. Do you all at your church sometimes go into the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue? Use that ever? <clears throat> okay. In some liturgies, when that's done, you also have this responsive prayer between each line of the Decalogue, which is kind of another bludgeoning way of hearing the full-throated law. Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Right? Right? indicating the same thing, that the law is there to tell you what is right, good, and holy. It is to tell you what its high bar is and to remind you this is the demand of God on your life and to ask you an implicit question, how have you been doing with that? And then to give you the cry, Lord, have mercy upon us. The Gloria in this position, when you're praising God, I think should be done with a kind of the same sort of awe that you'd experience, say, if you had been in a dark room for half of a day and you were in somewhere like Denver, Colorado, which is really close to the sun, and it was noon and you opened up that room to the outside and the sun was just blazing in your face. That's what I think the experience of the Gloria in this position should be like, because think about it. The law has taken you to the end of yourself And in a sense, the law is uh, in case you still feel a little bit like you're trying to hide. It's totally shining the light. And when you're overwhelmed by a spotlight, what I often have prayed in other contexts um, at this kind of moment in a worship service is, Lord, your holiness shines a light on all the dark places of our hearts. No secrets are hid. Everything's perfectly exposed. I think the Gloria is the moment of full exposure so in a sense, it's, it's not a triumphant worship as much as it is a kind of desperate, sunburned worship in that moment when you're saying glory to God in the highest. In the sense, there's nothing in me worth glorifying. But I now see, based on all this exposure you've just done, you are glorious. And you also notice that in this Gloria, which was a kind of uh, an addition of Cranmer, was to add this kind of Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. This Gloria functions like a blazing light, an extension of a confession. So in a sense, even though we're glorifying God, that glory is, is matched with a, a confession of the inglorious reality of ourselves. And then notice the way the collects kind of always have a comforting word embedded into them. We say, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, which is a phrase utilized in Ruth for the way that uh, ancient Near Eastern Jews would greet one another. But is also a means of invoking the fact that as we're worshiping together, the Lord, who is Jesus and the Holy Spirit, is, is with us. In a sense, when you say the Lord be with you and with your spirit, there's a bit of a recovery from this confession that we just offered in the Gloria, a little mini absolution to say, God loves you right where you are. You know, like last night we said, God loves the Netflix you, not the Bible reading you, like the real you, the you that is found sort of decimated at the end of the Gloria. The Lord be with that you and with your spirit. Let us pray. Most often, all these collects are really beautiful words of comfort, like this one. It's sort of a desperate prayer of, keep your household, the church, in continual godliness. So it's God's work. That through your protection, it may be free from all adversities and devoutly serve you in good works to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through him alone who lives and reigns with you. And then we enter into the kind of second cycle of experiencing uh, the work of God and what I love about um, the way that scripture reading and songs are often situated in Anglican worship is it gives us this sense that worship is a dialogue between us and God. God speaks and we respond. So in a sense and what's even outlined here is God speaks a word from Philippians and we speak and pray back to him in sung form. Um, What I like to remind worship traditions that don't have a, quote, fixed liturgy, but they still sing songs is, yes, you do. (laughs) You sing songs, and they're the same words that everybody prays. You just use melodies with them. So you, too, have fixed things that everybody says at one time in a worship service. Yes, you rotate them, but nevertheless, you, too, have liturgies. And I think that the best of what we can think about what our songs are, are intoned prayers. There are things that we pray commonly together in a sung fashion. So here we have the second cycle with the word speaking to us and us responding. And then we have the message. So, you know, if we're looking back on this sheet, sometimes some Sundays you might experience repentance cycle two and repentance cycle three as one big cycle. You may hear more what you might describe as law work going on in the scripture readings and even in the music as you approach the sermon and the sermon offering you an absolving word of grace. So don't think that these cycles are necessarily hard and fast. But notice what happens after the sermon. We believe, credo, or even better for those of you that dabble in Greek, you know that believe and faith are the same word. Pistuo, right? So whenever we're saying I believe, what we're saying is I faith. I place my faith in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. One of the things I'd like you to observe about your posture in that moment is what happens when you're done with the sermon and it's time to confess your faith. What do you do? You stand. You stand. I would like you to imagine that you are dry bones and that the Word of God has come at you in the sermon and has made you alive in Christ. So that please stand is not merely just, well, we stand during the Creed and that's what Anglicans do. It's a resurrection moment where you rise and you, with new faith, say, I trust you, God. And you allow that posture to be something that participates in the formation of this kind of gospel shape and narrative. So oftentimes, and this is the kind of white space in between the rubrics that I love to play in as a liturgical leader. I will often say, after this is done and it's time, I will say, risen with Christ, please stand in his resurrection and let us confess our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed. Just a little bit of a kind of verbal instruction to give a kind of theological orientation to what we think of as just some ordinary posture. And what we want to do is enrich and enliven the way that these postures help us apprehend the kind of theological moment or what the Word is doing in that moment. So that you're recognizing, oh, the Word has, in a sense, killed me and made me alive. And what does the living being do but rise up and say, I believe in you, Lord Jesus. So you stand... You confess your faith, and then you get on your knees or in your seats in a posture of mutuality and prayer for one another. So this is really the first kind of horizontal moment, which makes sense, because you and I really aren't fit as creatures to love one another, apart from God having done a work in us to reconcile this broken thing. So in a sense, we've enacted this vertical reconciliation so that we can begin to participate in loving our neighbor as ourselves, And in a sense, what we're doing in that moment is fulfilling the demand of the law in Christ. We have been killed and made alive. We confess faith in Jesus. And now Jesus produces in us the good works which the liturgy has prepared in advance for us to do. The prayers of the people. So we pray for the church and the world and the whole state of Christ's church as we offer these prayers and prayers and even there, we're saying, in your mercy, Lord, hear our prayer. <clears throat> as, as this prayer ends, even though you immediately go into the confession of sin, I want you maybe to think about your heart refreshing into a new cycle. You've offered yourself to the Lord. Now is a fresh opportunity to maybe re-engage this pattern of repentance again. What's useful about this is that you can start to know, hey, we're headed to the table. We're headed to encounter God's grace afresh. So we're headed into a new uh, kind of confession. And this will be the, the moment of law and gospel through the forms of confession and absolution. I want you to pay attention to some of the language of this confession. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker and judge of us all, So even there, what kind of God are we acknowledging? The same God that we referenced in the Collect for Purity, who knows every desire, to whom every heart is open, no secrets are hid. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker and judge of all. We acknowledge and lament our many sins and offenses, which we have committed in every possible way, thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly. It's, it's right that you would feel this animosity and alienation toward us, Lord. We are deeply sorry for these transgressions. The burden of them is more that, than we can bear. What's really important about that line is a lot of what happens if you start to pray the Psalms. Not only is there a confession of sin, But there's a kind of confession of the way that sin as an external force oppresses you. And this is where I think that um, we need a, a really big view of sin that the prayer book gives us again. Is that sin is not only personal moral transgression, but like the book of Exodus teaches us in paradigmatic form. Sin is also an external oppressing force in addition to being something corrupting on the inside. And sin makes life burdensome. So even in this moment, we're not only saying my own personal transgression makes this hard, but it also makes my life miserable. This life is a hard life. The burden of sin and the weight of everything and all these forces that are out there that are constantly making life difficult, making toil hard, making my relationships marred, making... Politics broken, making the society make bad choices, making our ecology not work, and all those sorts of things. I'm hyperventilating under the weight of all of this. That's what we're confessing when we say the burden of, of the collective weight of sin is intolerable. And so there's a real kind of felt sense of, of not only I'm aware intellectually that sin offends you, God. I'm also feeling, I'm feeling deeply the oppression of all this in my heart. The burden of them is more than we can bear. Great. You notice how much Kyrie's are littered through the liturgy. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. Why is that quoted twice? I can't prove it, but one of the things that I observe Cranmer doing in the liturgy is putting us in the shoes of various Bible characters. We'll talk about the prayer of humble access later. But one of the things that might be going on here with the have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, is a subtle nod to Jesus' comparison of the prayers of the Pharisee and the publican. Do you remember that episode where Jesus is uh, who, you know, the disciples are asking him who's like a good Christian and who's a righteous person? And Jesus first turns to the Pharisee who who prays a beautiful prayer that probably sounds like a prayer that Thomas Cranmer would have penned. Eloquent, all those things. Long, God, I praise you that I'm not like these people. (laughs) I praise you that you've seen fit to, to make me this kind of person. Goes on and on and on. And then there's this publican, this tax collector. And his only prayer is, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus commends the publican. Saying, that's actually what faith looks like. Because I think Jesus also believed, because he was the preacher, in the distinction between law and gospel. Jesus believed in what justification does, which is it sifts out. And He's like, this, this man over here who says, have mercy on me, is closer to what real faith is than this Pharisee who's commingled faith and works. And is somehow trying to display his righteousness before others. He just doesn't get it. But this guy who says, have mercy on me, does. And in a sense, uh, we're getting the chance to put ourselves in that distinction and, and be in the shoes of the publican when we say, have mercy upon us. Have mercy, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that we evermore serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. In acknowledgement that the works on the other side of the absolution are always gifts. That are granted by God Himself. And then the absolution comes. And I love the word absolution because it means something absolute. I've heard in some Lutheran liturgies, and I love this all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven because that's the absolute nature of the work of the cross. It's that total, it's that final, it's that sweeping, it's that cosmic. And in a way, that's what you're being given when you're hearing Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy, important word, has promised forgiveness of sins to all who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him. Have mercy upon you. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. What I hope you hear as an individual person is when the you is said, you might insert your name there. Have mercy upon you, Zach. Because every person needs to hear this not as just something collectively for all people but individually for yourself is that the Lord comes to you with specificity and looks you in the eye and says, I forgive you. Comfortable words. Some people like to talk about this as an extension of absolution which it kind of is but something else is going on here too. Scholar Ashley Knoll points this out in his little booklet on comfortable words is that what's beginning here is a kind of gentle wooing to the table. The idea might be that as you walk through confession and absolution you still might go, "Yeah, but am I am I at a place where God would accept me at his table? I get that he forgives me, but I'm still feeling pretty rotten. Am I the kind of person that should be coming to the table? Am I clean enough?" Am I put together enough? Am I confessed up enough? Have I examined myself enough? And the comfortable words are there as four statements to progressively woo you to that table by reminding you of the kind of God, the kind of gentle and loving God that he is. Hear these words of comfort from Christ and his apostles. And this is where I hope that whoever's leading the liturgy, in a sense, vaporizes from your perception. And you actually picture and hear your Lord Jesus standing in front of you saying these words. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Did you hear that, by the way? The burden of them is intolerable. And now we have an addressing of that burden. I see you. I know how difficult life is. I know what kind of burden you carry. And I know that even even as the words of forgiveness have been so clear to you that you still might feel like you're not supposed to be coming to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's meant here for you is to find peace, not fear. It is why I struggle with understandings of communion that make us fixate on the elements for adoration Because what that produces in worship behavior is a kind of nervousness around the table. And I've seen this in Anglican contexts. Where chalice bearers and acolytes and even uh, the altar guild members who prepare the elements. Because they're aware of the sacredness of what they do. And the care with which we should treat the elements. In a sense, all that anxiety tends to trump the rest that is to be found at the table. And this was confirmed for me one time when I taught confirmation uh, to a bunch, of, a bunch of middle schoolers at my church. And the opening question I had, their parents were there too. And I, I, this was like a, a big test for me, and I wanted to see what they were going to answer. It, we started, it was kind of like an instructed Eucharist type thing. I said, hey, before we get started with this, I just want to ask you kids, and I don't want, I don't want your, your parents to answer or nudge you. I want you to just, what's your gut reaction when I ask you this question, Okay. When you come to the table every Sunday, what's the primary or first emotion that you feel? And the first kid immediately raised his hand and said, fear. And I said to him, that's not what you're supposed to feel at the table. That's the opposite. Because as the scriptures say, perfect love casts out fear. But we started to sort of unpack, why do you feel that fear? Well, it's because my parents always told me that I shouldn't mess anything up. And I know that a bunch of sacred things are happening. And and if I do something wrong, you know, it's going to. And all of a sudden, you realize that the whole centering of the piety around taking care of and adoring the elements has created a kind of fear-based understanding of the table, which is totally contrary to what the table is there to do, at least according to the original architects of the prayer book and how they read Scripture. Do you hear the distinction? And I'm not saying that all that stuff is bad, but when it creates cultures of fear, it does the opposite of what the comfortable words are there to do, which is to say, don't fear. This is a place where perfect love casts out fear. Hear, see, taste, touch the love of Jesus in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish. Don't fear getting zapped by God. God's not here at this place to judge you, but to give you love and grace. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's like four zingers because you keep on thinking it's too good to be true that Christ Jesus came into the world to save decent people, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, just like you who are burdened and wondering whether this is a place for you. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. If you had any doubt about the power and the gift of who Jesus is, let me remind you, Jesus is the righteous one and he is your advocate. You have a perfect advocate that is there before you, the one true priest in the house of God, the mediator between God and humanity. And therefore, the peace of the Lord be always with you and with your spirit. So you can see how much those words are meant to drive away any doubt that the table is a place of fear. And to give you all assurance that God has only blessing for you when you come to the table. And that the result of that blessing is a horizontal enactment of reconciliation. So yes, beyond just peace, peace, passing the peace and shaking hands... I would love for you all to feel, in a sense, that as you shake one another's hands, you're embodying the kind of posture that a Christian has in the world around us. Be reconciled to one another as Christ has reconciled himself to you. So, in a sense, we ritualize the fruit. In this ritual, we enact what the opposite end of repentance yields, which is the production of people who build bridges, The production of people who love in exchange for hate. The production of people who go the extra mile. The production of people who stay when others go. The production of people who go to the outcast, the poor, the widow, the marginalized, and say, I'm remaining here. The peace of the Lord be always with you. It's a sign of horizontal reconciliation. And it's also a a sign, once you've been blessed and absolved by God like that, of saying, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. To Thee. So the offertory is this place where we get to say, Jesus, I offer to you all of me. Take all of me. Sometimes if there, I don't know, do you all do a procession of offering plates down to the front, to the table? What I like to encourage congregations to do, this is sort of funny, but imagine that you're not just putting money in an offering plate. Imagine that you're placing yourself in it and that the person is carrying you up to the altar. And when they raise you up, you're kind of flopped over on that table, being offered up to God as a living sacrifice. And this is what I, you know, the Reformation retooled around the scriptures the theology of sacrifice. What they understood what was going on at Holy Communion was not a re-sacrificing or even a representation of the sacrifice of Jesus. If there was any sacrificing going on, it was us. Being sacrificed. So if in any sense we call the table an altar, it is because you are being placed on there, and the living and active word is piercing you and cutting you and offering you change through Jesus to God. And so in a sense, when the offering is lifted up, you can say, Jesus, this is what I give to you. I give my whole self to you. So you can imagine your, the whole pile of your church in that offering plate, and that whatever money might be in there is just a sort of token of your very self and your whole life, Right? The presentation. I love that you all sing that particular doxology because in a way it summarizes the several cycles that you've been working through. Your perfect law exposes me, but there is one who lived for me, and then the resulting kind of Gloria and doxology of praising God. In a sense, in that song, you're enacting the kind of cycle and and ritual of repentance, like a little mini gospel cycle there. And then we enter into the communion service proper. This great Thanksgiving is part of the most ancient sections of liturgy. Some of the earliest Christian liturgies that we have show us that this was a part of the worship service. So this is something that when we say, the Lord be with you and with your spirit lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. One of the glories of saying that is realizing just how many centuries and generations of saints and faithful Followers of Jesus have said those words. And so when you say in the creed, I believe in the communion of saints, you get a chance to live it when you participate in the great thanksgiving and the sursum corda, or lift up your hearts in Latin. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. What's being said there too is that what's going on spiritually in communion to the best of our ability to explain what is only and ever always a mystery is that God, through the Holy Spirit, is going to take me up to heaven to be and commune where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord so that the Holy Spirit can take our heart. And through this journey of the communion liturgy, take me straight into the Holy of Holies where I encounter the presence and power of our risen Lord in his body and his blood. Prayers are given. Notice that... We have another moment that is, in, in the Bible, uh, this, this kind of sanctus moment, this holy, holy, holy moment. There are two times where a sanctus is, this sanctus is mentioned in Scripture. Both times are times when, when the heavens have been opened up to the observer. So this song gets heard. It's a song that gets repeated in heaven. So anybody that has a problem with repetitive worship songs needs to kind of uh, take issue with this worship song in the Bible. Some people are like, oh, I hate contemporary worship music. It's 7-11 songs, seven words sung 11 times. Well, you're really not going to like the worship of heaven because it's like um, an 11 infinity song. Holy, 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 Lord God. I don't know how many words that is, but it's just being sung constantly. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 through 5 is where you get... This peering into the heavenlies to this song. So, what it is is a foretaste of the glory of God, an experience of the law of God in His raw holiness to say, as a result of kind of being lifted closer to heaven, I'm feeling the heat of God's glory. Holy. Holy, holy. I say it three times because he's perfectly holy. Lord God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. That's kind of a a counterpoint to all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are prayers, prayers of consecration, Lord's prayer, an opportunity to say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. What I want you to pay attention to is that kind of experience of holiness that you felt at the at the sanctus there, in a sense, should be held onto all the way to the point of the prayer of humble access. And the prayer of humble access is the other moment I was talking about of what I sort of view Cranmer as doing, which is to put, putting us in the shoes of Bible characters that remind us to place ourselves totally away from looking at ourselves and looking to Jesus. Because just as we talked about that Lord have mercy section being a little moment where we're placed in the shoes of the publican who the only prayer he could offer was Lord have mercy on me because I've got nothing to give. So too, Cranmer has found another Bible character who also prayed in such a way and identified herself in such a way as to indicate I've got nothing. It's this beautiful interaction between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. And some readings of it sound like Jesus is being really weird to her because he does things like call her a dog and, and, um, and kind of dismiss her a little bit too easily. But what you find our loving and gentle Savior doing is identifying, I think this true disciple here is about to give us an object lesson on what real faith is like. So as the disciples watch, in a sense I'm going to give her the script that, I, that they would think is how I should treat her being a foreign pagan woman. I'm going to give her that script for a while just to sort of double down on the fact that at the end of this, she's going to exhibit more faith than they do. And so Jesus takes the Syrophoenician woman for a little bit of a kind of dialogical ride before affirming, I haven't found such great faith as in this woman. Because she basically said, uh, he was sort of debating her, you know, why should I give food to dogs? And she has... This one line, which is the only time in all of scripture where someone is recorded as beating Jesus in an argument. She wins the argument when she says, well, even good masters give the crumbs off their table to their dogs. She's disclosing several things in there. First, she's disclosing, number one, that she's really confident that Jesus is merciful She's really confident because she's, in a sense, jumping in and playing his game with his metaphor about dogs. It's like even good masters give food to their dogs. She's also saying, I know you. I know your reputation. Your reputation is one who is a man of great generosity. You're generous. And so I trust that you will be generous to me now. And so when we pray the prayer of humble access, we're being placed into the shoes of someone who's been identified as having faith apart from works. Someone who's been identified as so trusting in the mercy and goodness of Jesus that she's not presenting anything that would make Jesus want to give her something from the table. She just says, I know you in your heart. You give food and love and grace and mercy to people who don't deserve it. I am one of those undeserving people. Come and give me yourself. So we don't presume to come to this, your table, trusting in our own righteousness. Look at this justification, sifting out all the good works here. I don't come trusting in my righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. There's the line. But you are the same Lord, and this is one of my favorite lines in all liturgy. The old languages, whose property is always, always, always to have mercy. Can I come to you the 99th time with this besetting sin and find you forgiving me yet again? Yes, because your property is always to have mercy. Who can come to the table? People like the Syrophoenician woman who knew not that they were great, but that Jesus' mercy was great. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ. Meaning, in the sense, totally to trust that what you're going to give me is good enough and merciful enough and totally of you that I, I'm not going to eat this in any way but by utter faith. I'm going to eat it in that way. so to eat the flesh. Just like the way the Syrophoenician woman trusted in your mercy to receive your good gifts and nothing of her own merit or value did she appeal to. In that same way, this is how I'm coming to the table. I'm trusting in your mercy and grace. I want to eat you in that way and receive of you that way. There's a final... Confession in the Lamb of God and then a giving of communion. What I hope you always hear when the bread and the wine are given to you, I want you to pay attention to two words that should be coming at you. For you. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ which is for you. I want you to hear that and know that that is intended to specify and offer that promise of God to you and that gospel to you so that you can have and receive Christ in all your senses. We pray the post-communion prayer. We thank you for feeding us in these holy mysteries with the spiritual food. So in a sense, we're praying, offering ourselves to God. But notice this feature of the post-communion prayer. It's one of my favorite aspects of it. We thank you for assuring us. Assuring us of what? There are three assurances that you are being given at the table. Of your favor and goodness towards us. That's number one. That we are true members. So the first is that God is actually favorably disposed to you and not angry with you. That's what he did at the table is to remind you, I love you. I don't hate you. I love you. And my intentions toward you are favorable and good. The second assurance is that we are true members of the mystical body of your son. In other words, that I'm actually, I actually count as a member of, of your church. That I'm actually an insider, not an outsider. That's what the table is there to assure us of, the blessed company of all faithful people. And the third assurance, that we are heirs through hope of your everlasting kingdom. That in a sense, I, as an adopted firstborn son, whether you're a man or a woman, adopted into the sonship of Jesus, receive all the benefits and inheritance that Jesus does. That's what the table is there to remind you of. Those three things, all those assurances are coming at you at the table, which is why and I love the way Ashley Knoll quipped this. One of the goals of coming to the table is the changing into the body and blood of Jesus, the actual body and blood of Jesus. He said, uh, he said it this way. Cranmer actually did believe in transubstantiation. It's just that he didn't think it was the bread and the wine that were changing into the body and blood of Jesus, but the church That's what we mean when we say, when I receive Christ's body and blood, I, we are becoming the body of Christ. We are being transformed into his likeness. We are the ones who are assured that we are true members of the mystical body of your son, the blessed company of all faithful people. And then there's nothing left to do but to be blessed and go and go out on mission and love and serve the Lord. You sing, and you're dismissed with alleluia. all blessing, no cursing. Thanks be to God. Questions? That's a good question. Why do we say Kyrie's as convicted Protestants? If we are truly convicted that Christ's sacrifice, the question is why, why is there so much, especially at the beginning of liturgy, uh, a constant pleading for God's mercy, have mercy on me. Why do we say Kyrie's is if Christ's sacrifice was once and for all, why do I have to ask for it again? I think the, uh, the answer would be that even as Christ sacrifices once for all, daily, I'm always need, needing to be freshly made aware that I need it because I'm so forgetful of the gospel. So in a sense, what those have mercies are there to remind me of is I'm never supposed to transcend any other posture but just being a needy and dependent Christian who follows Jesus. And in fact, dependence is the way of the Christian life. Have mercy is a kind of what a dependent Christian says. So there's probably a right way and a wrong way to sort of say those things. If you're sort of groveling out of fear that he may not give mercy, you're not asking for mercy in the right way. But if you're saying have mercy as someone who's very confident that in this process of being honest about my need for mercy, God will give it, you're probably more in the right posture of the spirit of the way that those words would want to be experienced. Yes. Yeah, how important is the Psalter to our worship? I think it's vital. And in fact, we should understand that the Psalter is the original book of common prayer. And the Psalter is the only unassailable inspired book of common prayer. When I'm in environments where worship leaders don't lead from liturgies, but just lead from CCLI charts, if you know what that is, like Christian worship billboard charts, I'm quick to say, did you know that God has a top 150 CCLI chart? It's called the Psalms. I would encourage you to pray those Psalms, read those Psalms, write songs according to those songs, Because in a way, anything that we pray in the Book of Common Prayer is only as valuable if and as it's derivative from the spirituality, posture, and theology of the Psalms. So placing the Psalter at the center of Anglican spirituality or Church of England spirituality from the Reformation perspective was very intentional. Because as Luther said, the Psalms are a little Bible. And what he meant by that was, if I took Genesis through Revelation, studied it up, and then prayed it back to God, I would have the Psalms. Or as Calvin said, the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In a sense, the Psalter is the great expression of every possible hue of my human existence before God. So if and as I'm regularly praying them daily, praying them often, praying them in worship, and recognizing and participating in how they leak into the Book of Common Prayer all over the place in the liturgy, I'm participating in, in the joy of the power and formation of God's prayer book. One more question before lunch. Yes, Are the comfortable words, are they all for important because there are places in Anglicanism where some are read but not all? My answer to that is 100% yes, definitely. They're all for important. There is a structural integrity to them. There is a kind of experience of their progression that really matters. And I'm all for more words of comfort and grace, not less in worship services. But if you want a great exposition that's short and punchy, but clear on why they're valuable as an integral whole with all four of them. Read Ashley Knoll's little booklet called, uh, I think it's called Comfortable Words. D- divine Allurement, thank you. The Comfortable Words. And there, it's, it's very devotional, so it's not a theological work. It's kind of like, here's the comfortable words. Here's what you're meant to hear. Here's where it's taking you. What you're experiencing when you're in those contexts is the fact that later revisions of the prayer book made those comfortable words optional, and said, one or more of these may be said. That's not what was in the original intent for Cranmer. Cranmer didn't have any sort of a caveat there. Those were just all said, you know. And null is the one to help us realize this is why. This is why all four are helpful and needed.